0: verses 13 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. destroy this temple and in 3 days i will raise it up the jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in 3 days but he was speaking about the temple of his body and th- therefore he was ra- when therefore he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that jesus had spoken this is the word of the lord let us pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable because you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it isn't very often that we get around to reading the Song of Solomon. It's the R-rated part of the Bible. It's a song that is sung back and forth Between two lovers with uh, a chorus uh, of friends chiming in every once in a while. This morning we read just a couple of verses from the song of Solomon. One lover saying to the other, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. We might translate that as tattoo me on your heart, tattoo me on your arm. Set me as a seal... Upon your heart as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. This morning we continue in our sermon series through the gospel of John. And we read the familiar story of Jesus cleansing the temple. You all know this story. Jesus sees People selling animals and changing money in the temple. And his anger flares up. And he makes a whip to drive the people and the animals out of the temple. And he dumps over the tables of the money changers. And I have to guess that his voice was raised just a bit when he said, Take these things away. Jesus was angry and his anger was physical. If you did today what he did then, you can be sure that someone would call the cops and you would be cooling your heels in jail or minimally they would have a restraining order against you. Jesus is torqued up. He is not happy. He is seeing red. And the explanation that is offered to us in the Gospel of John for Jesus' outrageous behavior is a brief quotation from Psalm 69. It shows up in John 2, 17. Zeal for your house will consume me. Have you ever had a passion that consumed you? Naturally, I had to go over to Psalm 69 to study that passage and to try to wrap my mind around this zeal that consumed someone like a red hot fire. And in short order, I found my way into the Song of Solomon because the word for zeal used in Psalm 69 is the same word that shows up in the Song of Solomon. Only there in our translation, it is rendered as jealousy instead of zeal. Other places in the Old Testament, this word is translated as indignation or fury. Love is strong as death. Jealousy or zeal is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now if you sleep through the rest of this sermon, I want you to get this one point. I want you to see the connection between love and zeal. Zeal or jealousy is the reaction that a lover has when the thing that he loves is intruded upon. Or compromised or threatened or adulterated in in any way. Let me repeat that. Zeal or jealousy is the reaction that a lover has when the thing he loves is intruded upon, compromised, or threatened, or adulterated in any way. Now, I realize that for some of us, there might be a psychological reaction to holding together these two ideas, love and zeal. Because love is gentle, while zeal is fierce. Love is delicate, while zeal is rock hard. Love is the treasure. But zeal is the protective barrier around the treasure. And where there is true love, there will be true zeal. Let me offer just one silly example. You go to dinner with your friend, the wine connoisseur. He orders a bottle of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild for $2,500. It's brought to the table, and it's decanted. He samples the wine, and he approves the bottle. And as he's beginning to enjoy his first magnificent glass, you lean over and say, Hey, you know what is really good? Red wine mixed with a little Coca-Cola. Here, let me show you. And as you reach... To pour your Coca-Cola into his wine glass, your wine connoisseur friend all of a sudden becomes a judo expert and you find yourself on the floor. That is zeal. How dare you adulterate a glass of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. The wine... Connoisseur's love for fine wine creates in him a zeal which protects the things that he loves. Jesus' love for the temple caused his zeal to flare up. Like the very flame of the Lord, when he sees the temple intruded upon, compromised, and adulterated, where there is true love, there will be true zeal. Fifteen years ago, Bob and Tammy got married at St. Mark's United Church of Christ in Philadelphia. And this morning, right here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, Bob and Tammy tammy are going to renew their wedding vows. Fifteen years ago, Bob and Tammy started their life together by promising to love, honor, honor, And cherish each other regardless of their circumstances, in sickness and in health, for richer and for poorer, for better and for worse, forsaking all others. And they promise to do this until the day that they die. And today, they're going to renew those vows. 15 years of history behind them, and they are recommitting themselves to the promise to walk together as husband and wife until death separates them. I love weddings, and I love the promises that we make at weddings. Yes, I know the promises are totally crazy. I mean, you promise yourself, body and soul, all that you own, all that you are, all that you will ever earn, all that you will become, and you promise it for all times to another person, and all the while you don't know what the future is going to hold, and you don't know what you and that other person will become over time. It is a total commitment in the face of an unseen future. How crazy is that? It's crazy, and it's beautiful. Total commitment in the face of an uncertain future. That's the way we need to live. No more keeping our options open. No more hedging our bets. Let's put it all on the line and say we're all in. Marriage promises are like God's promises. Wedding vows are like God's vows. Marriage is a covenant like God's covenant. They are forever. They don't change when unexpected things show up. And here's what's so great about that. Because these promises and vows and covenants are unchanging, because they are unconditional, they give us the confidence to live without fear and to live in great freedom. When we know that someone who loves and honors and cherishes us will stick with us no matter what, it lets us live fearlessly. When the children of Israel were about to enter into the promised land, they were afraid of the dangers that lay ahead. There were hostile people that was an unknown territory. And God says to them, Be strong and courageous, Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. When Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, leaving his befuddled and bewildered disciples to face an uncertain future, Jesus says to them, I'm with you always until the end of the age. The apostle Paul, writing from prison to the church in Rome, a church that was facing oppression and martyrdom, he says to them, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's commitment to His people is forever... It does not waver. It is unconditional. And it is that total commitment. We don't have to look back over our shoulders to see if God is still with us. It is that total commitment that gives us the confidence to live in freedom in the face of uncertainty. Letting vows, the promises that we make when we enter into marriage mirror God's covenantal promises to his people marriage is a visible reminder of the invisible union between christ and his church paul alludes to this in ephesians chapter 5 where he writes therefore a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one this mystery is profound and i am saying that it refers to christ and the church Weddings are wonderful. And what they signify is deeply mysterious. Two people becoming one. Their love is between them. And their zeal for that love causes them to protect each other and to protect their marriage. They do that by performing a judo move on anyone who might pour Coca-Cola into their Chateau Lafitte Rochelle. They do that by making a whip and driving out any animals who don't belong in their courtyard. Rainer Maria Rilke, the German romantic poet, wrote, A good marriage is one in which each partner appoints the other to be the guardian of his or her own solitude, and thus they show each other the greatest possible trust. Each lover is also a guardian. And it is the zeal of a guardian that protects the purity and the holiness of the marriage. To have a great glass of wine, you need to keep out the impurities. To have a holy temple, you need to keep out worldly things. To have a healthy marriage, you need to keep out anything that dilutes or adulterates or interferes with that marriage. Now I want to touch on just one more point before we conclude. And that point is this. Love and zeal find their perfection in holiness. Love and zeal find their perfection in holiness. Zeal is what forms the protective barrier around the thing that we love. A barrier that separates the thing that we love from things that might injure it. Holiness is also a protective separation. Holy things are separated from everyday things, and they're set aside for a special purpose. And when our love and our zeal are perfected, when we love perfectly and have zeal perfectly, we find ourselves in the presence of the holy. Now, I know this idea is a little complicated, so let me see if I can make some sense of it by going back To our story of the cleansing of the temple. It's Passover and Jesus is at the temple in Jerusalem. Keep in mind that the temple is not a single building. It's a complex of buildings surrounded by a courtyard with covered uh, walkways and a wall on the periphery of the property. We're going to visit it and and Stephen's going to Give us the tour in March of 2018. We're coming, okay? So hold open a slot for us. Now imagine HVPC as the temple in Jerusalem. We would be in the temple proper... Right here, the chancel would be the Holy of Holies. Outside of this building, along Huntington Pike and Ariston Avenue, would be high retaining walls, and the space between those walls and this building would be filled in so that instead of a ski slope for a parking lot, we would have a perfectly level courtyard surrounding the sanctuary. It's in that courtyard surrounding the temple that Jesus encounters people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. There were also people who had set up tables to handle foreign exchange, trading denarii and drachmas for shekels. Those people and their animals and their trading tables were in the temple courtyard for legitimate reasons. All of the business transacted there was conducted with the approval of the temple officials. The animals sold were offered as sacrifices in the temple. All of the animals were clean, according to Jewish law. There were no pigs there and because Jews traveled from all over the world to be in Jerusalem for tree, the money changers them their foreign currency. From their home country, the money changers provided an important service to religious pilgrims. But Jesus sees all of this activity and he's really unhappy. His reaction is physical. He makes this whip and he drives the people and the animals out. He picks up the jars of coins and he dumps them on the ground and he overturns the table. His zeal is a strong physical emotional reaction. Because what is at stake here is the holiness of the temple. To be holy is to be set aside for some special purpose. Holy things are consecrated for godly purposes. The holier something is, the more removed it is from every day. The opposite of holy is not sinful or evil. The opposite of holy is ordinary or workaday. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now there's nothing sinful about work. Quite to the contrary, sloth is a sin. And it's not possible to please God if we're not willing to work. Work is our ordinary human condition. But the Sabbath, the day set aside for not working, is holy. Work is good. But the Sabbath is holy. It's better than good. The holiness of God was signaled through the physical separation in the temple. The holy of holies, the innermost part of the temple, contained the ark of the covenant, and the lid on top of the co- uh, on top of the ark was covered in gold, was called the mercy seat, and was the place where God was understood to be actually present with his people. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies only one day a year on Yom Kippur to make atonement for the people. The place was so holy, in fact, that the priest would tie a rope around his ankle when he went in, in case he was struck dead, they could drag him out without dying themselves. Outside of this Holy of Holies, there was another place, the holy place, and that's where the priest did their everyday priestly work. It was holy, it was set aside, but it was not as holy as the holy of holies. And then outside of those two holy places was the courtyard. And even the courtyard was removed from the outside world by its walls. So it too was set aside for a special purpose. It is in this courtyard... That Jesus encounters people selling animals and changing money. And Jesus is angry with a lack of regard for the holiness or the separateness of even the temple courtyard. How come? Because the things God sets apart to be separated should not be compromised even in the least little way. Jesus isn't upset because there's something sinful about oxen or sheep or pigeons. He isn't upset because there's something evil about money. In and of themselves, those things are just fine. There's nothing wrong with them. But what is holy is set aside completely and entirely without reservations. It is set aside even from ordinary good things. Now, that should give us a clue about just how separate... Just how set apart, just how holy these things are. Even good things can water down the holy things. Just like good Coca-Cola can adulterate a glass of Chateau Lafitte Rochild. Now let's bring this home. There are things and relationships in your life which qualify as Holy. I don't mean just good. I mean holy. Your relationship with Almighty God is holy. It was made possible by the death of Jesus. It is sustained by the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is mediated through God's scriptures. That holy relationship brings you into the highest and most sublime pleasures that we can know on earth. And it is a relationship that will survive death. Because our relationship with God is holy, we need a great zeal to shield it from anything, even good things that might interfere, that might try to distract our attention when our attention should be fully on God. I have to tell you that as a pastor, this is something that I struggle with every week. Because when I come to church on a Sunday morning, I'm supposed to be here seeking God's face and seeking to point you to God's face. But I can be distracted by other things. Those things aren't evil. They're just ordinary things. They're good things. But in that space where I am reaching out for God, if I'm thinking about the lighting or if I'm thinking about the heater or if I'm thinking about my sermon manuscript or if I'm thinking about the sound system or if I'm thinking about that pineapple next to my car, then I'm not thinking about God. And I need to be disciplined with myself. I need to take a whip out And drive out those other thoughts from my mind so that I can gaze upon the beauty that surpasses all beauties. In your relationship with Almighty God, you have an experience of the holy. And you need to take great care, great zeal to guard that relationship from anything that might intrude. If you are married, your relationship with your spouse is holy. Now, I'm not saying that your spouse is holy. He's not. But your marriage is. Marriage was created by God for a holy purpose. In marriage, we see the face of God. And we know pleasures in a way that's not possible anywhere else. In spite of its wonder, it is easy to let things intrude upon our marriages. Sometimes those things are evil and those we need to obviously drive out, but sometimes it's good things that intrude upon our marriages. Things like jobs and hobbies and other external relationships in and of themselves, those things are good. But if they enter into that sacred space set aside for the marriage, then they too must go and we must be disciplined. We must take up the whip and drive them out. I admire people Who say to me, sorry pastor, I can't meet with you this evening. I have a date with my wife. Meeting with the pastor, what could be more fun than that? You might be saying to yourself, I'm hoping going out with your wife is more fun. I don't think the people who were selling animals or changing money in the temple courts were evil. I don't think they were bad. But I do think they had become careless about the holiness of the temple. I think they took it too much for granted. And I think there are a lot of marriages that suffer because husbands and wives take their marriage for granted. They take each other for granted. We need to be zealous as we guard our relationship with God. Don't ever take that for granted. We need to be zealous as we guard our relationship with our spouse. Don't ever take it for granted. Even if that means that you must take up a whip, and drive out something from your holy place. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the testimony of John the Evangelist. We pray this morning that you would seal these words to our heart and keep our eyes focused on you. Lord, you know how susceptible we are to distraction. We pray this morning that you would claim our hearts and hold us close. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.